Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, hello. Before we get stuck into the politics for you, a quick message from The Resident. These hotels, like their choice in podcasts, are exceptional. Whether you're traveling for business or leisure, at The Resident, you're offered the best rooms, prices, and advice for your needs as well. We are so thrilled to be brought to you in association with The Resident. When we're booking a stay in London or Liverpool, it's The Resident we head to, and it's The Resident you should head to. To find out more, click residenthotels.com. And in doing this, I think I'm summing up the views of the people I've worked for and value and cherish for nearly 50 years. This is what to do with it, presiding officer. This is what to do with it. I do it now. That is what the people of Scotland, who have great affection for our fishermen, want to happen and what should happen and what I believe will happen at some stage or another. Hello and welcome to Hollywood Sources. Thank you very much for being with us on the podcast. We're recording on Wednesday, the 26th of July. I'm Callum McDonald and also here, Jeff Aberdeen, former Chief of Staff to the First Minister, Alex Salmond. Hello, Jeff. Hello from a typically sunny Aberdeen. Typically sunny. Mm. Uh, we'll we'll fact check that one at a suitable moment. Uh, Andy McKeever's with us as well, former Director of Communications for the Scottish Conservatives. Hello, Andy. Good morning, good morning. Hello, and chirping away in the background there, uh, one of our most requested guests, actually, we asked a couple of weeks ago on Twitter who you, who you would like to hear from on the podcast, and I have to say, there were so many requests for Mr. Fergus Ewing, who joins us on the podcast this week. Hello, Fergus. Yes, good morning. And where are you joining us from? It, sound, it sounds like a, some sort of tropical rainforest or something in the background. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, the, the heart, the heart of the Highlands, uh, a place called Dromuli near Boat of Garten, where the sun is is struggling valiantly, 
against the elements. Beautiful place. We're very glad to have you here, Fergus. Thank you very much for, for making the time. And actually, I do just want to start by by considering what something we were talking about last week, in fact. Um, and Jeff and Andy, and we had Stephen Flynn, in fact, on the podcast last week as well, who all spoke very fondly of, of your mother, of Winnie Ewing. Um, and that was, of course, just after the memorial service and everything had taken place. And our condolences to you on, on your loss, and indeed on such a loss for so many um how are you doing how are you reflecting on the on the last couple of weeks and and people's messages to you and 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 how you've kind of got through the this sort of phase um well winnie um lived to 93 and lived a a fuller's life uh, as it's possible to lead them her achievements are are known and um her loss was extremely sad but um i think uh, the memorial service, the family funeral we had, did her proud or as nearly proud as Jerry Fisher pointed out as it's possible to do to someone like Winnie. <laughs> I was particularly pleased at the the singing and the eulogies and the the uh, the, the the readings. Um, Alex Hammond and Alex Neil kindly delivered the the two eulogies and the the event has been seen um, uh, online by I think perhaps around about 10,000 people now and we've had nothing but positive feedback so I think the family were very pleased at the service and um, a Mark Strange the the Primus uh, did us did us proud and uh, and uh, therefore that that makes these things easier it's a sort of catharsis I guess to have a a proper send-off and we felt that that's that's what she she got what she deserved and we will not see her likes again mm. it's so fascinating i think there, there's such consensus about that isn't there jeff that, that actually you know winnie was was unique oh, yeah, she certainly was and um i mean i, I mentioned last week i had the privilege of meeting her on a few occasions uh, in my early snp career and uh, the thing that stood out for me the most is that she had as much time for me as she did for all the senior politicians and she was always quick to give you words of advice and encouragement and i i think just the the further thing that i would add to what fergus has said i've been struck by the outpouring of gratitude uh, across the political divide um for her contribution to public service which as fergus rightly points out i don't think will be surpassed and we won't see her likes again and and rest in peace Um, Fergus, it's so good to have you on. There are so many current issues as well that we want to to talk to you about and to and to consider, I suppose, um, in light of all that's going on politically in Scotland and and beyond. Um, I don't, I suppose, where, where to start? There are so many things to talk to you about. Um, I think maybe one of the things we want to start with is, is considering the A9. Actually, uh, is the is the duelling of the A9. That's, that feels like a real. Well, a real issue for you, indeed, threats that if, if the A9 doesn't become a dual carriageway, that you will take quite quite serious action. Can you talk to us, first of all, about why why you feel so strongly? Well, because many reasons, but primarily because, unlike most political issues, this is quite literally a matter of life and death. And last year, 13 people lost their lives in fatal incidents on the road, 12 of them on single carriageways. There is no central reservation in single carriageways and therefore the risk of head-on collisions is is very substantial and lots of people have lost their lives um, as a result and some of them have been in touch with me 
in every case, a whole family's life for the rest of the duration of their lives has been devastated. So I think that must be the starting point. The second point is that, you know, I've been in the SNP or campaigning for 50 years and first stood as a candidate in 1992 when the days when nobody expected really to come first except with the possible exception of my mother. For all those years, those decades, and in government since 2007 or 2008, we've been promising to do this. I mean, it's so old and undelivered pledge that it should be getting a bus pass, quite frankly. Uh, but to be serious, it's a matter of honour for me because I have a duty to people that voted for me. Some of them perhaps not necessarily a vote for the SNP, but because they think that I try to do right for them on matters that really count. And this is one of them. And I cannot sit idly by if we are going to be strung along for more years. There's no plan at the moment. I mean, how can you have a three to four billion pound project and not have a plan? So um, I've made it absolutely clear at a crisis summit held by the Highland Media Group, the Inverness Courier last week, that really Hamza, who, who has said that there's a cast iron guarantee to deliver, must follow through with a detailed plan with, with details as to when each section is done uh, and also to change the procurement strategy because Transport Scotland have failed. And they more or less admitted that. So major change is required. And I think that what I've said has struck a chord, Callum, with my constituents. Mm. The feedback I get is, you are speaking for us. And, you know, some things are more important than loyalty to party, which obviously is something I've pursued for nearly half a century. Uh, and amongst those are my commitment to independence for Scotland, to my family, but also to constituents who've supported me for eight elections now, and six of them successful, time and time again, promising that if I'm elected, I will argue for their to them to receive um, in investment so that they have safer road connections, as enjoyed by the citizens of most other parts of Scotland, certainly all the other cities in Scotland, apart from Inverness. Mm. It's interesting to me, Fergus, that it's become a, a confidence issue for you. You know, it's a real it's a real challenge to the government to do something about this, or or they will lose your confidence. And I just wonder if, in addition to that, you are feeling that this is a confidence issue for constituents aimed at the SNP, aimed at the Scottish government right now. I'm afraid to say that I think we we've, we've already forfeited the trust of a great deal of constituents over this issue. You know, we've, we've gone a long way down the road of losing faith because, frankly, we've strung people along. And the kick in the teeth, really, was the failure of the tomato and moi tendering, a failure which, frankly, had been predicted by industry sources. Um, and the, the retention of a deadline of completion by 25, which for the last few years everyone has known to be uh, unachievable, um, so it is an issue of confidence for many of my constituents. And, you know, Hamza is, is a new leader. He was elected with a mandate, a narrow mandate, and he's entitled, therefore, to have a shot, to have a chance. But my feeling is that that chance is slipping away from his grasp unless he makes good on the fundamentals. And one of them is our unimplemented 
promised to the A9 and the A96. The last thing I would say is that there has always been in the Highlands a feeling that whether it's London, Brussels or Edinburgh, government is a long, long way away. That's an undercurrent that has always existed. And the Highlanders are loyal. They were loyal to the Liberals for nearly a century until they chose strange bedfellows. And maybe my party has chosen equally strange bedfellows, albeit with different proclivities from the Conservatives. I think we will get back to um, the choice of bedfellows at some point during... Uh, and, and obviously it relates very strongly to this issue of roads, not just the A9, but other roads as well. I mean, I think that a lot of, a lot of listeners of this podcast are not in Scotland, and I think that it would be hard for them to understand how bad a road the A9 is unless they drive it. The A9 is a terrible, terrible road. It's a stain on Scotland. It would be a stain on any developed country. It would be a stain on some less developed countries, to be honest with you. I drive it a lot. In fact, I'm driving it tomorrow night um, en route to Lewis. And to be honest with you, every time I hit the Keswick Bridge, I breathe a sigh of relief that I've made another trip uh, unscathed. It is a dreadful, dreadful road. Um, and, you know, I think there's something in what Fergus said about being far away from London, because actually it's something that the that has not been dealt with by the SNP, but also wasn't dealt with by other parties before the SNP either. This has been going on for decades and decades. And actually, it's one of the best arguments, not often used, I must say, but it's one of the better arguments um, for uh, independence is that transport infrastructure spending, the further away you get from London, the less transport infrastructure spending there was. And devolution was actually an opportunity to put that right because it was no longer up to London what Scotland chose to spend money on when it came to transport. You get the barnet consequentials from transport spending and you spend it on what you want to spend it on. And I think that gets me to an important point here. This is not about money. This is about political choice. The Scottish government has a block grant of money. It is entirely up to the Scottish government what it uses it for. It has chosen not to use it for the A9 for a substantial period of time. And at the moment, because of the alliance with the Green Party, it is choosing not to use it for road building full stop. There is really no prospect of seeing a spade in the ground for a trunk road in Scotland for a very, very, very long time to come. I think we have to understand that. You know, we see STPR2, and again, for listeners outside Scotland, that's a strategic transport projects review, which did talk about some uh, minor upgrades and some trunk roads. There's no sign of any of it happening, and I don't expect any of it to happen anytime soon. So um, I completely understand why uh, Fergus is... I mean, I'm angry about this, and I live in Edinburgh. I'm angry about it because I have to drive up the road and I have to read the newspapers every other week when there's been another accident on this road. So Fergus's anger on behalf of his constituents about the A9 is entirely properly placed, um, in my view. And yes, Jeff, it does... I'm afraid it does get us on to um, the coalition with the Greens because a very significant part of that coalition is that... And again, I always emphasise, I'm not necessarily criticising the Greens here. The Greens have been an incredibly successful political party over the last 18 months. They have extracted enormous amounts of power um, from the fact that the SNP needed one extra vote. And one of the things they have done is they have put a halt to road building. Everybody inside politics knows that. It may not be openly clear, but it is absolutely clear internally that the reason roads cannot be built at the moment is because of the Green Party being in government.
Mm. Well, the, the, there is a fundamental fallacy at the heart of the approach um, of the Green Party, and I'm afraid to say the Scottish government about new road building, and that is this, that surely if you are above all uh, in politics a Green, an environmentalist, and that's your number one priority, then what you should be against is not roads, but emissions. It's the emissions that are the key cause of concern, surely, and that which we seek to reduce or eliminate in order to tackle climate change, rightly so, provided it's done in a sensible, pragmatic and effective fashion. Now, the last time I looked, the Greens were in favour of buses. And so far as I can see, buses are driven on things called roads. <laughs> so, and the second point is that if we are all to use these low emission vehicles, um, and the jury is out about how effective the how effective these vehicles are in actually helping the planet. But I won't go into that now. But if we're to use low emission vehicles, they still need to be driven on things called roads. And therefore, surely the, the correct thing to do is to continue to support new road building in order to, uh, above all, to provide safety, as has been emphasized by us all, but also to improve economic links. I mean, there's a further irony, I'll finish with this, that over the next um, remainder of the century, Scotland is looking to the Highlands to deliver on our renewable obligations in places like Nick, Cromarty Firth, Ardesir, the Western Isles, all around the coast, tidal energy, offshore wind, hydro, pump storage, you name it, we've got it. Um, and it's there is a feeling now that there is a critical mass and a possibility of real growth and tens of thousands more jobs, possibly. Um, now, if, if that's to happen, then they're going to need houses and they're going to need better transport. So it's almost as if the Scottish government is saying, well, we expect you to deliver on the economy, but we're not actually prepared to part with a proper share of our budget to provide you with the same safe road infrastructure as enjoyed by the rest of Scotland. And you're 10 times more likely to die in a fatal incident on the A9 than on the motorway. 10 times, yeah. according to the Road Safety Foundation. So this is really um, a matter of huge importance. And I make no apology whatsoever in saying to Hamza, you've got a chance, mate, my friend, but don't waste it and show that you mean it. And my job, frankly, is to exert maximum possible pressure on everybody, whether they're in my party or any other party is of no consequence to me. And that's exactly what I'm doing. And I will continue to do a, over the coming uh, the coming months. And the A96, I should say as well, equally deserves the, exactly the same upgrading. And uh, you'll be hearing more about that shortly. Yeah. Uh, Fergus, can I come on just there? Because you, you just made the point that I really wanted to emphasize. Um, I think we all know about the, 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 the road safety um, elements of this, which and the points have been well made from you and Andy, but the economic imperative of this dueling is so, so important. If we are truly to realise this ambition that we've been hearing about, the green industrialisation of our country, the port infrastructure in and around the Highlands is so important. And actually the A96, which is a corridor, direct corridor with Aberdeen, which is going to be a huge nerve centre in terms of the innovation, the R&D and the high value manufacturing, complementary to that of the ports, 
that you have mentioned. We need the infrastructure in place to support that. Now, I will give the, the, the Scottish government some credit in terms of my part of the world just now. They did build the, the, the Aberdeen Western Peripheral Route. That was uh, during my time in government. And the economic spin-off from that has been huge because you have businesses relocating there. It's cutting journey times from the Buchan, uh, uh, North Buchan coast right down to the south of Aberdeen. And it has helped massively for industry. And so it will help if we get it done with yep. the A90 and, uh, A9 and A96. Uh, Fergus, just on this, and and we'll we'll move on. There's lots of issues we want to cover today, and I think we've just touched on energy, which I really want to pick your brains on. But, you know, this is clearly very important to you. You've made your case. Can I ask you politically, from a personal perspective, what needs to happen for you to um, continue supporting the Scottish government? I think that was a a paraphrase of the, 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 the press that was... Uh, following the crisis summit and would we ever see a situation where you might stand in your Inverness seat but not for the SNP how ridiculous would that sound but is that how strongly you feel about it well it's a matter of honour for me I've made that clear and the answer to your first question is this what Hamza needs to do is as soon as possible after parliament resumes not just in the autumn which is the commitment as soon as possible provide a parliamentary statement from the cabinet secretary or the transport minister. Uh, and that needs to do three things. One, to provide a revised timetable by which the A9 dueling will be completed. Uh, and I believe that should be around 2030. Second, to accompanying that, Jeff, to provide detail as to when each of the sections, the nine remaining sections of the 11 will be dueled. Uh, And thirdly, to confirm, uh, and this is a political commitment, uh, the the, the capital budget and the available budget will be devoted very largely to this and the A96 project for perhaps the next 10 years. Uh, Other parts of Scotland have seen major improvements, as you pointed out, the Aberdeen Peripheral Road, the Borders Railway, motorway network in Glasgow, the fourth crossing, the magnificent fourth crossing, which had to be done, um, uh, and... Edinburgh, of course, in its wisdom, chose the the trams. Well, hey-ho. But the point is, they they have had their turn. Now it's ours. And I think what I've outlined, Jeff, is is the basic minimum. The last thing I would say is this. Why is it so important that there's a a commitment to not just the, the deadline, but the detail, all of the nine sections? The reason is that if there, ha- if there is another administration, say Labour Liberal or whatever, mm. um, then we need to bind them in. Mm. We need to bind them in for commitments that if they become the administration, they're not going to pull the rug from under the feet of this project and programme. And I think that can best be done by making not just a, a detailed headline commitment. We've had that already and it didn't work. But a, a commitment to the detail of how exactly that will be implemented and a detailed plan a program, a program board reporting every quarter or half year so that this is open, c- clear, clear cut uh, and the commitment is is absolute. That, that to me, is the, the bare minimum, Jeff. As far as the other question is concerned, I want to give Hamza's chance. I, I don't want to be mean-spirited about this. I've got a great admiration for Hamza's personal charm and his desire to do the right thing. But at the end of the day, personal charm is one thing. Being a First Minister 
you need to show real leadership and take tough decisions. And if that means telling his uh, green uh, chums that we're doing this because Hamza is the leader, I think uh, a lot of people would hold Hamza in high regard if that's what he does. Good you know, I just, yeah, <laughs> I, 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 I've got a point on that as well. But just before that, just to close off the, the road issue, um, Fergus mentioned the missions earlier on. That's just an important thing to circle back on. I've got, I've got clients with an interest in upgrading the A75 uh, down in the southwest. And uh, a really interesting study was done by one of the hauliers that uses that road, which showed that they reckon they emit two tonnes more CO2 every single day on the A75 than they do on the same stretch, the same length stretch of road down in England on a dual carriageway. Two tonnes a day more CO2 because it stops start all the time and it's so yeah. slow. So there are environmental benefits to better roads. I think we shouldn't ignore that. And also, as well as the energy issue economically, you know, the A9 is absolutely, I mean, it's the spine of Scotland, but everything west and north of the A9 is heavily dependent on it. That includes agriculture, aquaculture, you know, the tip of the A9 is a route to Orkney, which also opens up uh, more energy opportunities as well. So there are clear economic benefits. But look, if I'm being completely honest, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an outsider here. I'm, you know, I'm not a nationalist, not an SNP member um, or supporter. But if I'm being completely honest, as a political observer, if somebody said to me, who is Hamza Yusuf closer to politically, ideologically, and the choice is Fergus Ewing or Ross Greer, I'm afraid the answer is Ross Greer, right? Every day of the week. I, I, I think it is. I think Hamza Yusuf would feel closer politically to Ross Greer than Fergus Ewing. Now, that's a, quite a thing for an SNP leader. Um, uh, but I think, it's, I think I'm right about that. And I, I, I think that possibly goes a little bit of the way to highlight and to wrap up a lot of what we're talking about here, which is that the kind of urban-rural divide is perhaps greater now than I've ever seen it before. Um, and I think the, uh, the policy making for an urban Scotland at the expense of rural Scotland is probably greater now than I've ever seen that before as well. Mm. I, I wouldn't comment on, on Mr. Greer, but I mean, I, I think you're, you're absolutely right that I know for, you know, beyond any possible doubt that in rural Scotland, there's a huge scepticism about the influence that the Greens are uh, are are having on government uh, in all sorts of ways, and we've we've seen it in um, in uh, particularly in the HPMAs, the the absurd proposals in the HPMAs, which propose to ban fishermen from their 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 work in in providing food for the country uh, at great risk to themselves, and the only reference in that document to fishermen was that fishing was destructive. I mean, can you imagine it? Fishing, part of our history, our culture, for centuries. A group of people that are really admired, I think, by many Scots for what they do. The more so that we've seen in TV programmes just how dangerous it can be, actually, mm. uh, to, to work where that's your workplace. Uh, a tilting, moving boat in the worst of weathers surrounded by equipment of steel cables and so on. I mean, my hat goes off to these guys. And uh, really, the, this HPMA proposals, I, I uh, you know, 
created a little bit of mini notoriety by tearing up the proposals. But the reason I did that was to reflect the anger that I was hearing from speaking to people that I worked for for 50 years. And you know something? If my mother, Winnie, had been around and if she had been in the Holyrood chamber, I wouldn't be surprised if what she did would have been exactly the same thing. But that's symptomatic of the problem you've identified, and it's one of of a huge number of issues where there's a great gulf opening between rural and highland and island Scotland on the one hand, and the metropolitan Scotland, the, the wine bar revolutionaries, as I bribe them, <laughs> I think not, not particularly inaccurately, I may say, a, in, in Parliament. And this is perhaps the most serious thing that Hamza should do, in my opinion, uh, is to detach himself from this dalliance with the Greens uh, and get on with more sensible, sound government and win back the trust and confidence of people whose votes we used to get uh, in rural and highland Scotland and indeed out with our cities. And, and Fergus, can I can I just touch on this uh, with you? You're the first guest we've had on, apart from Alex Salmon, but for obvious um, um, reasons, he, he wasn't talking too much about um, uh, his reflections on the party and, and we might be quite skewed given he's changed parties. But when we worked together for, I was you know, 10 years in the, in the party to 2004, 2015, and you'd obviously been there a lot longer. Now, I recall a party that was pretty nimble. I recall a party that certainly had their disagreements, certainly had some pretty forceful discussions, but we kept our dirty laundry in-house. We dealt with it in-house, and we usually presented a united front. Can I ask you, what's your reflections? Do you agree with my assessment in that period? And perhaps you don't. But secondly, what's gone wrong that we are seeing such um, quite unprecedented interventions, let's be honest, from people like yourself, from other parliamentarians, from on a whole range of different issues, a whole range of different issues. Has there been something wrong with the party infrastructure? Have we responded well to the mass uptick in membership? <coughs> what is the reasons that we're now having this divide between the urban and the rural, that we're seemingly not appealing to that core vote that the SNP successfully managed to, to command? Well, I, I think you're, you are right. I do agree with you. Um, I do think we were nimble and effective. We were also a broad kirk. We mm. accommodated people across the political spectrum. And, and why is that a good thing and why is it important? Well, it's a good thing because Scotland is a broad kirk. I mean, you have people of the left, the middle and the, the right. Uh, and to sort of demonise some of them, as the, the party has done under... Nicholas reign that Tories are somehow reprehensible as human beings, that's almost the implication, is not only wrong, but it's a pretty duff political strategy to lambast a, a significant minority of the electorate whose support you wish to gain, whose trust and confidence you're trying to build up. So we need to be a broad kirk. And the second point is that for 48 of the 50 years I've campaigned for the SNP since... Um, campaigning for Gordon Wilson in the Dundee by-election in 1973. Uh, in 48 of those years, Jeff, uh, we put Scotland first. That was our unique selling point. Yes, people knew that our aim is independence, but the second part of our membership card is the furtherance of Scotland's interests. 
and we put Scotland first, and that means putting the people first. But over the last two years, the priorities seem to have shifted. No longer are we putting people first, but we're pursuing climate change and biodiversity, even if they result in the poorest of people being punished, like low emission zones, where people that can't afford new cars have got to pay a financial penalty. For what gain, I'm not entirely certain, uh, if any. So the point I'm making, Jeff, is we need to be a broad kirk and we need to put Scotland first. And if we cease to be a broad kirk and if we cease to put people first, how can we expect to win over more than half, significantly more than half, to our cause of independence? We need a broad kirk to be able to do that. If we're only appealing to the, to the green, to the socialists, then by definition, uh, we are preventing ourselves from winning the very referendum and support for independence that is crucial to, to achieve our ultimate objective of a normal, independent, free country. With what you're saying in, in mind, Fergus, I'm, I'm thinking back actually to an early episode of this podcast where we spoke to Kate Forbes just after the, the leadership contest had concluded. And obviously she faced quite a lot of difficulty from you know, from lots of different angles, but that included from within the SNP and other MSPs and MPs being really quite highly critical of her. And I remember asking her about how she was feeling about going back into the Scottish Parliament after the uh, after the leadership contest. And she said, you know, she was going in with a, a spirit of friendliness and she would extend the hand of friendship, I think was the phrase she actually used. And whether that would be returned was, you know, remained to be seen at that point. And just it just makes me wonder how, how you feel being an MSP in the SNP, in the Scottish Parliament right, right now, and, and whether there is a, a noticeable change of atmosphere that you are either experiencing or perhaps enduring um, comparative to what you may have experienced in your, in your time previously? Well, the, the, the atmosphere in Holyrood is, is uh, not particularly happy now within the SNP group, I'm afraid to say, and, and uh, so much so that, frankly, there's many of people in the cabinet and the leadership that haven't uttered a word to me or vice versa for well over a year. And it's very sad. And, and I, I, I do think that they would have done better to have listened to, to people like me when I set out very detailed, logical, rational objections to some of the policies they've been pursuing, notably deposit return, short-term regulations on tourism, which is disastrous, the HPMAs. Um, eventually, they were forced to defer deposit return on HPMAs, but instead of doing so in a way that showed leadership and initiative, they did so in a sort of reluctant, resentful, truculent way, which is what nobody's support. So the atmosphere is, is, is I'm afraid, not particularly happy. Mm. Does that bother me a great deal? Uh, frankly, I, I, I don't give a damn. Um, that's, I'm, not, I'm not there for a social club. I'm not there to have a happy time in the bar. In fact, I don't think I've been to the bar in the Scottish Parliament the last two, last two sessions, frankly, too busy. Mm. I'm there to do a job for Scotland. I, I'm in a privileged position of being, being a representative of a major, hugely important part of Scotland. And if, if people don't like me or, or if they don't like my ideas, well, that's just tough because you know, I've reached the stage now where um, you know, I can see very clearly what I think needs to be done. Um, I respect others who may disagree with me, but I'm certainly not going to be deterred simply because um, there, there's a bit of a to toxic atmosphere amongst the, the SNP group mm. in, in Holyrood. Hi. 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. News has reached us from our friends at the Resident Hotels, without whom we would not be here. This podcast is made in association with The Resident. The Resident in Covent Garden in London has been confirmed by TripAdvisor Traveller's Choice Best of the Best as the number two hotel in the UK and number 15 in Europe for 2023. Already, the resident Covent Garden had a magnificent reputation. It was number one in the UK TripAdvisor Traveller's Choice Best of the Best in 2022, and the resident in Victoria and the resident in Soho, both in London, feature in the UK Top 20. Add to that news that the resident in Liverpool, the resident Victoria, and the resident in Kensington are all now ranked in the top 10% of hotels worldwide by TripAdvisor. Basically, what we're saying is, if you need a hotel in Liverpool or in London, book The Resident. It's interesting what you mentioned there, Fergus, about the prospects for um, independence. Uh, and I mean, I've, I was reflecting again this morning, actually, because there was a poll uh, in The Times today um, which I think was commissioned by Adam Morris, one of my successors as uh, head of media at the Scottish Tory party, um, about how another poll showing that people largely would opt for a something in the middle option. They want the Scottish Parliament to have more power, but in the main, they would like Westminster to hold on to a degree of power as well. And I've long argued amongst erstwhile unionist colleagues that um, what they should be doing is creating effectively a kind of asymmetric federalist offer for Scotland uh, on the basis that that is what people would choose and it would put this whole issue to bed and really be a massive problem for nationalists. I just wonder what your reflections are. You know, if there were a referendum now or this year or, you know, this autumn or whatever, um, and in that referendum the offer from uh, the unionist community was effectively a, a, a sort of quasi-federalism for Scotland... How, how do you think that would do? I mean, as a nationalist, as a supporter of independence, would you fancy a referendum right now up against a federalist option? Or would you think, actually, that's not a fight I think we need to have right now? Um, well, with, with, all, with all respect, Andy, I mean, it's a, you've put the case for a, a federalist option um, in the articulate way that I've come to expect. I'm not sure that it's actually an offer that's on the table any more than the vow proved to to last much beyond the the, um, the the day of its publication in the daily record. But, but you know, to answer your question anyway, even if it is hypothetical, um, 
I would like to see more powers coming to Scotland, and, and I, will, I will work with the Conservatives, Labour, Liberal, to that end. And indeed, much of this Parliament, <coughs> excuse me, I've worked cross-party on a number of things, and I, I think sometimes we achieve more than perhaps is obvious on the, on the face of it in politics. Jeff will know that's often how it works. You have more influence uh, than you realise because the government doesn't tell you when, in fact, they're acting because of what you've said. Um, but but um, would we win a referendum now? I don't think we would. And the, the reason is that we forfeited the trust and confidence that is the underlying sine qua non of success. We spend far too much time in an arid, um, somewhat theoretical discussion about mechanisms and process, when in fact what we should be doing is focusing on delivering competent, sensible government, uh, reaching out to the moderate middle ground, um, eschewing extreme, extremist policies such as the gender reform, HPMAs, deposit return, short-term lets, um, and the uh, Patrick Harvey's absurd plans to make it illegal to sell houses if you don't have the type of heating that he favours, even though he himself apparently is not going to be going down that road in his flat in Glasgow. So uh, uh, what, that's what we should be doing, building up trust and confidence by competent government. And that's the only way that we can get independent. I'm confident we will get independence, <clears throat> but I'm afraid the events of the last two years have set that back, in my opinion. Now, this may seem like heresy to some of my colleagues to utter this, but it's honest. I'm being honest here. What's happened, and I know because I speak to hundreds of people all the time, and they're telling me exactly the same thing. They don't like the SNP being in government with the Greens. They want that to end. And unless or until that happens, there's absolutely no prospect of winning back their support and confidence that I know I personally had gained by dint of hard work over 30 years. Notably, the very successful time when Alex Salmon was leader of the SNP, when he managed to get to the best election result ever in 2011 after we had a minority government and where we lost votes, which actually didn't matter one iota, because nobody knew about them anyway. Um, but where we did build up the right approach, which is let's work with all parties. Let's find the good in all parties. That's what people want. They don't actually understand the party bickering. They usually don't know what it's all about. Only those in the bubble know what it's about. Outside the bubble, they're busy getting on with bringing up their kids, getting on with their job, dealing with the vicissitudes of dealing with the government, incidentally, not least the, the endless increase in taxation. Uh, and uh, there we are. Um, I, I think perhaps I'm extending beyond the original question here, but... Uh, I don't think you could be accused of not being clear, uh, Fergus. <laughs> I think we're, I'm grateful for that. But, but, but uh, This podcast is all about extending people beyond the original question, Fergus. That's absolutely fine. We like that. Yeah. <laughs> let, let, let me take something on with you, because... Um, Firstly, and I think it's really important to set this out, you know, you give a lot of credit to Alex Salmond. I think that's unfair because he had a tremendous chief of staff. Now, the... the, 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 the <laughs> we'll enter that, but the, I, don't worry, it's fine. <laughs> I, I just want, I, I want to touch on this because um, it, it really does echo what I've been saying throughout this podcast um, a lot about competent government. And there is a lot of discussions out there about you don't need to be competent government, you just need to make the case for independence. And, and I'm, I'm sorry, I have to just absolutely agree that I'm afraid that the both of them go hand in hand. Now, my fear um, for the next general election, this is what I want to really ask you, Fergus, 
is I do agree with you. I think Hamza has shown a good appetite for being first minister. I think he's been in and around the business community and I've seen a lot more proactive engagement across a whole range of different stakeholder groups. And I, and I like that. But I do think it's it's lacking a little bit of vision. And that vision has to culminate in uh, how you would advance an independent Scotland of your SNP persuasion, obviously. If you put it to the touch in this 2024 general election, or we anticipate it'll be 2024, you're not giving yourself much time. And, and, and I just wonder if you've got any observations on Hamza saying essentially that if I get a majority of seats, I've got a mandate. Now, if he does that and doesn't get a majority of seats, he by definition will have no mandate, as his opposition will remind him, and, and he may have to have a premature departure from that position. What are your observations on the strategy for the general election as it stands from what we know? Uh, well, I'm, I'm afraid it's, it, is, it, it is simply um, fallacious to equiparate um, winning a general election with a mandate for independence. It just does not sack up. The purpose of a UK general election is to deliver the, the votes which enables the, the king to ask the largest party capable of forming a government so to do. That is the purpose of a UK general election. Now, whether we like that or not, we cannot change that simply because we would wish to have another purpose. That will remain the purpose of a general election. And moreover, at a general election, people are always going to vote for a whole variety of things. Uh, and I suspect that independence will not be one of the key factors in determining people's votes at the general election. It very rarely has been. So I think this is a complete cul-de-sac. I think it will take us precisely nowhere. It's caused an confusion. And I go back to you know what we said and what our opponents said during the 214 referendum, which we very nearly won, Jeff. Um, thanks to the brilliant special advisors that <laughs> <laughs> you have so rightly uh, to point out. But but see, we very nearly won that say, referendum. And the point I'm making is that it was said that there shouldn't be another referendum for a generation. Now, unless there was a material change, and there has been a material change, but, but I do think, actually, that, that it is fair enough to say that there shouldn't be a referendum every few years. It is a bit of a distraction from competent government, and inevitably so. And I, I think our unwillingness to accept that the rationale for that is not actually doing us any good. Now, you know, I, I do think that we need to build up support for independence, and I frankly think it's going to take several years to do that, um, especially with the experience of the last two years, which have set us back, I'm afraid. And I very much hope that Hamza will come to see that a referendum is the only way under international law, under international acceptance and recognition, as Catalonia has shown, uh, that we can actually become a recognised independent country under international law. And they, all our navel-gazing about the process is doing us no good whatsoever. We need to build up support and confidence of the majority of the people. And that means people in the middle, in the centre ground. And to my mind, that includes about 80-85% of the people in Scotland whose votes we can potentially get. And if, as Andy says, 
we can help to get there by accressing more powers. For example, over employment law, over enabling us to have more people in Scotland to do the work that needs to be done. These are things that have gained a popularity, a currency, where there will be support, you know, amongst other parties for accressing more powers. And that would be a good thing as well. And I, I you know, I, I didn't want to suggest I was poo-pooing Andrew's overall analysis, because I think there is something to it there. I just don't think it's an offer, Andy, that's on the table at the moment. Mm -hmm. I completely, just for the record, that I, I entirely agree, and that's a source of great frustration for me and a lot of other, um, I suppose, what you would call, you know, Scotland first centre ground people is that um, it appears incredibly strategically obvious that the unionists should put that offer on the table. But frankly, they are too um, emotionally charged to do so. Uh, and I think these, you know, as I said before, um, Tories and to a degree some Labour people in Westminster as well, they see devolution as defeat and they think any more power you hand down is a victory for the SNP and uh, they simply don't have the emotional headspace to think about doing it. So I agree with your assessment. Mm. It's not on the table. I just think it should be. Mm. Indeed. I think what's really interesting, again, if I was to, you know, if I was just to say as an impartial observer in all of this, uh, Fergus, is, you know, the number of people like yourself, SNP, MPs, MSPs, whatever, advisors like Jeff, um, the, the feeling of consensus around what should be happening versus the reality of what is happening, both strategically on independence and in other things as well, in other areas like governing. Even today, there's reports from IPPR Scotland that that actually the two-child benefit cap policy is something that the Scottish government should jump on straight away as a, as a political opportunity to demonstrate leadership, is the quote from Philip White from IPPR Scotland, to prove that there, that devolution can empower different choices is one thing that he says. And he says there's a moral responsibility. And so as I say, as a kind of, you know, zoomed out impartial person, there is consensus from the people we speak yeah. to on this podcast, but the reality of, of governing seems really far removed. I think removed that's right, that. but maybe I could just move things on a little bit because... I don't want to be seen to be a Victor Meldrew, uh, an angry old man, as I think <laughs> one of our Green called me. Um, and uh, well, well, I I am not young, and I'm 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 certainly angry. So perhaps they they weren't wrong in that in that regard. It's always a first time for them not to be wrong. Um, but but you know what what I want to say seriously is a very positive thing that, and you know this will appeal to Jeff that that Scotland now has tremendous opportunities within our grasp, perfectly achievable in a number of fronts, a number of fronts of the economy, but especially energy, because we are one of the very few countries in the world that has got a world-class oil and gas sector. And that sector, that expertise is critical in realizing the renewable ambitions. And the, the reason is that to operate in the North Sea, you need to be able to operate in the extreme conditions. You need to understand pipeline technology and maintenance, you need to understand seismology, reservoir management. In particular, opportunities lie in the new or nascent uh, technologies of hydrogen and cap carbon capture and storage. And actually, Scotland and Norway between them have the only place where it's possible to store depleted uh, to, st to store carbon in our depleted oil and gas fields. The situation in Barendrecht, an experiment that Shell made in, in Holland, showed that People in Europe are not willing to have carbon stored underground, on land, beneath cities and populous areas. They're not willing to do that politically. That means that the only place to store carbon is in depleted oil and gas fields. That's a tremendous opportunity. We should be trumpeting this to the rooftops and saying, if we want back into the EU, this is a great lever that we have something they need. And moreover, 
um, oil and gas is not dead. There is still 40, 50 years life in it, and certainly 20, 30 years of very profitable life. And another absolutely key point, Jeff, and you will be um, extremely well aware of this, is this, that in Aberdeen, Aberdeenshire, and indeed throughout parts of Scotland, we have people in the oil and gas industry of international repute. We are leading in subsea. We are leading across a whole range of ultra-sophisticated engineering techniques. Uh, and it's so easy to disregard resource of that supply chain in Aberdeen, uh, not only for the continued production of oil and gas with a far lower carbon footprint than imported frac gas from the USA or uh, LNG from Qatar, um, uh, and therefore oil and gas that we absolutely need in Scotland and the UK for decades to come, not least for, um, for complex hydrocarbons without which there would be no anaesthetic operations. There would be no operations in the NHS without oil and gas. Only hydrocarbons can be used for the complex equipment, machinery, and anaesthetics in the NHS. Whoever says that? But that aside, the key importance is that those people who have made a success of the oil and gas industry worldwide, based largely in Aberdeen, Aberdeenshire, are the critical skills that we require to take advantage of the huge renewal, renewable opportunities that lie ahead. We are in the unique situation worldwide of having international expertise in oil and gas, plus a brilliant resource in renewable energy of just about every single type. That's almost unique in the world. A tremendous opportunity for Scotland to gain confidence amongst our people sufficient to take us forward to independence and economic um, and human success and prosperity. So I, I wanted to emphasize that point in this podcast today, and I'm most grateful for the opportunity to be heard. And again, in, in the spirit of more consensual and positive politics, I have been pretty reassured um, again by the First Minister's approach by Neil Gray as Cabinet Secretary for uh, Energy and Economy and indeed the UK government as well. And I'm hoping that we'll have some positive news on some of these fronts pretty soon. What we must ensure is that there is a cohesive strategy, that there is an industrial strategy. And because it's energy, it's quite complex. There are devolved and reserved areas linked with planning and grid connections, that we have that collaboration piece that you talked about earlier, Fergus. If we can get this right, the, the opportunity for our country and uh, and the job creation that will come from that, and most importantly, our ability to lower emissions as part of getting to net zero uh, is huge. Uh, and I think we've got to take it. Nice one. Thank you, Jeff. And thank you, Fergus Ewing as well. One of, I kid you not, one of the most requested guests for the podcast. And I think the last 50 minutes has probably demonstrated why. Fergus, we are really glad to have had you on the podcast. Thank you for being so generous with your time and, and for meeting the people's demands to finally get you on and, and hear from you on the episode as well. Thank you very much. <laughs> thank you. Um, absolutely brilliant to hear from Fergus Ewing today. Of course, you can respond to what you've heard. The email address is hello at hollyroodsources.com if you want to get in touch and add to that. We'll read your emails at the start of next week's episode, so get in touch with your own reaction, your response. Do you agree with Fergus Ewing? Do you disagree? What do you want to add to what he's told us on Hollywood Sources this week? Uh, our thanks also to Andy McKeever. Thank you. 
And also, I should just say at this point, if you uh, if you stick around in the podcast feed, so not only are you getting this, our usual Wednesday episode, but actually there is a big announcement imminent, and that will be dropping into your podcast feed before the end of the week. Uh, so do make sure you're following and subscribed as well. Uh, thanks very much for being with us. We'll talk to you again very, very soon. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.